Is anybody into like family history, um, genealogies? You, you kind of know some of your history? Okay, we got some. Um, it's kind of fun to go back and see who you're related to, and maybe if you're related to anybody famous, right? Um, anybody related to anybody famous? Who, who are you related to? All of the kings and queens and duchesses. That's cool. <clears throat> John Adams. All right. Who else? Pilgrims. Awesome. That was a good one. Anybody else? I'm, I don't think I'm not related to anybody quite that famous. Uh, we have friends that live in Texas. I, I went, they've got a big old ranch, which is like probably every ranch in Texas, right? Um, but this big old ranch, they are direct descendants just a couple generations down from General Stonewall Jackson. And that's kind of cool, especially if you're from the South, right? My wife's family, they've got a relative, kind of a distant relative in their family um, that is kind of an outlaw figure, actually. His name is, or was Peg Leg Joe. And I, I don't know his actual real name, but Peg Leg Joe is what everybody called him. Actually, actually my dad grew up and knew him as a, as a young child. And this guy was an outlaw, kind of an outlaw character. He had, he had killed some people. You know, I'm not like a murderer, but uh, we don't know exactly the circumstances. Uh, but he would actually, if somebody got on the wrong side of him, he'd pull out his, his six-shooter and tell him to dance and shoot around their feet and make them dance. So uh, that's kind of cool if you're a kid to have a friend like that, you know? But what's funny is on my, my, or my wife's side of the family, for her parents and that whole side of the family, he, they don't really like to talk about him. He's kind of notorious, and he's kind of an outlaw figure. My wife worked for this organization, this kids' uh, organization here in town for years and years, though, and their family is also related to Peg Leg Joe, kind of distantly, and to this side of the family, he's a folk hero. And they, th- they just think it's great that Peg Leg Joe is, is on their side of the family. They, they love the guy, right? So I think that's interesting. But the truth is, when people like investigate their past and their, their genealogy, uh, they're usually looking for good connections, right? People they're proud of, people that they're happy that they can associate themselves with. Uh, I've got a great grandpa, uh, Grandpa Ernie Schmidt, and this guy was an amazing guy. We didn't even find out. I never met him, uh, but we've heard stories. Um, he did this amazing, uh, all these cool things. And we found out after he died, he like funded people's college careers and stuff without anybody even knowing about it. Um, just a generous and really wonderful man. In fact, he was a master, I don't know what you call it, he carved wood, like big wood things. He carved this zoo with the animals inside the bars. Like, it's amazing. Huge. Yeah, you're like, how, do, how does that work? I don't know. Apparently they had more time in their hands back in like the 50s and 60s, right? Um, they just didn't have Netflix to binge watch. You have the time, too. Um, so he did all these amazing things, and we love to, to talk about him. We proudly display his carvings. We have this carving on my parents' wall that has a water wheel that he carved in place and actually turns. It's really cool. And we proudly talk about him. Now, we've, I've got another great-grandfather who I also never met, and we don't talk about him much. He was not a good husband. He was not a good father. He did not leave a legacy worth following. We don't talk about him. We don't, he's just sort of 
you know, brushed to the side in our family history, so to speak, right? And that brings us to where we're at today in our series. As we look at some of the, the characters that are listed in the very beginning of Matthew's account of the Christmas story. And what we've been seeing right from the very beginning of this, Matthew starts the Christmas story with a genealogy because what he's trying to do is establish that Jesus is connected to all the right people that he needs to be connected to to be the legitimate Messiah, the Christ, the, the son or the, the ancestor of King David, the one who could sit on the throne of King David. So as he's doing this, what actually happens then is he does something very strange, something very unexpected. And as we'll see again today in this story we're going to look at, is that he goes out of his way to list some very odd, strange people you would not expect to find in the genealogy. If what he's trying to do is establish that Jesus is the Messiah, the Holy One of God, you would list all the good people you want to be associated with, right? The pilgrims and, and all those kind of people in your past. But you wouldn't list some other people. And what Matthew does is to go out of his way to point out some of the most shady characters that are in the genealogy of Jesus. And what we've been discovering in this series is that for Matthew, as he, as he thinks about the story of Christmas and the message of Jesus, that's the whole point of the story. That Jesus came to save those who were caught in their sins. That grace encounters the most unlikely people in the most unlikely moments. And that's what we've been seeing. And so, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start off again by reading the first part of Matthew, and it's going to bring us to the character that we're going to talk about today. Matthew 1.1 says this, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Now those are the forefathers, those are the big dudes, right? Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Now we looked at that story last week. And it was somewhat unexpected. Judah wasn't quite the guy we thought he would be to begin with, right? Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Again, Matthew brings up this name. And every good Jewish person who grew up, you know, reading these, this, these histories, reading the Torah from the time they were very little, they went, Tamar, why'd you have to put her in there? This is this weird kind of creepy R-rated story. A little bit of incest, it's, it's kind of weird, right? Why, why would you put her in there? Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, this is the second time in just a few verses that Matthew pauses to point out who somebody's mother was. And again, he doesn't pick like Sarah, Rachel, you know, the big names, Rebecca. No, he picks Rahab. Rahab. And it's very unexpected that she would be included at the very start of the Christmas story because Rahab has a title. And I bet... Many of you in this room, this is 3,500 to 4,000 years later. I'll just bring that up. Um, and I bet many of you in this room 
still know the title of Rahab. Let's see if we can all call it out together um, in the old King James Version, if you remember it. Rahab the harlot. Thank you very much. Now, I'm just guessing you're hoping that if this world is still, you know, spinning as is and Jesus hasn't come back 4,000 years from now, which let's pray he does, right? Uh, But if that's the case, people aren't sitting around with remembering your name associated with the title like this, right? She has a title. She had a, a reputation. She has a past. And it's a past that that went on to define her in a significant way, right? And here's, here's the thing about Rahab. I'm, I'm guessing that this wasn't the title that Rahab set out to have in life. I don't think this was something she planned. I'm guessing she never sat around as a little girl and dreamt of living a life that would give her a title like this, right? This wasn't the way she thought that life would end up. But somewhere in life, a moment came along. A moment arrived, and in that moment, she made a choice, a lousy choice. And probably in a culture like this, it very likely was a choice based on desperation. In fact, if you look around the world and people that are caught in trafficking and and this kind of thing today all around the world, it's usually a choice that's based on desperation. It's not something somebody chooses. But one thing leads to another. You make a choice that It was a lousy choice for whatever reason. And before you know it, what happens is you get stuck, you get caught, because this thing then defines you. You're disqualified from from standing in life, right? And before you know it, you're just caught, and there's no way to get out of it. I know a guy, um, one one of the best craftsmen that I know, amazing guy. And yet years and years and years ago, in a moment, he made a lousy choice. He tried meth. And this has been something he has not been able to escape from. Escapes a little while, and then it catches him. And it's been heartbreaking to watch this over 15 years, to, to just watch this cycle unfold. And by the time we meet Rahab, you get this picture of a, of a jaded woman who's learned how to do what she needs to do to get by. And now she's actually a business owner in the world's oldest profession, She's doing probably quite well financially, but I'm guessing inside her soul just feels dead. And I'm guessing that God encountering her life in this moment was the very last thing on her mind. Maybe a few years ago, before everything got so crazy, right? Maybe a few years ago, but not now. She's gone too far. Uh, Her story has been set, right? Her path is set. It's settled. Her moment has come and gone. And in the midst of this situation, God encounters her in an absolutely unexpected moment of grace. And here's why I think this is going to maybe speak to some in the room today and why you should maybe pay attention. It's like, like her, some of you feel like your story is settled. Maybe you have a past, maybe you have a present that you're ashamed of and that it's begun to define you. Maybe you made some lousy choices in life and now you feel very separated from God. Or maybe that's kind of not your story, but maybe your story is you felt really connected to God back then. Like 
you had these God moments where, where you, you knew the profound sense of God's presence and walking with Him and experiencing like the excitement of living your life for Him, but then you just got busy and distracted and caught up in the day-to-day grind. And now you actually kind of feel like God's just a little bit indifferent to you. Like there's just, the relationship is just kind of stagnant. And just having any excitement about following God is actually in your rearview mirror somewhere. Or for some in the room, maybe, maybe life just hasn't gone the way that you expected at all. You've had some real serious disappointments along the way. Um, honestly, you just feel like there's not a lot of hope at this point that it's going to change. And really, if you're honest, your story is you, you feel like God has let you down. And here's what we're going to discover today. Whether you're in the room, you're joining us online, that, that God's grace comes at unexpected times and in unexpected moments. And, and when those moments come, oftentimes they are defining moments in your life and how you respond in those moments makes all the difference in how your story ends up. And so as we look at Rahab's story, you can start turning over if you want to Joshua chapter 2. That's where we find it. And she's got an amazing story. But just to catch you up, because we're going to kind of dive into the middle of a conversation. Last week, uh, Jason talked about Judah and Tamar and that whole crazy story. And at the end of, of that story, what happens is Judah and you know, his much more famous brother, Joseph, and, uh, is down in Egypt, and they bring the whole family down because there's a famine. And you know you got the 12 brothers plus all their kids and a very elderly grandpa, Jacob, right? And, and they all come down and they settle in the land of Goshen, and it's rescue for them from the famine. And they're blessed, and they begin to multiply, they do good at having babies, right? They multiply. And, and the prophecy that God spoke to Abraham, that I will make you into a great nation, begins to occur with them. And this family turns into a nation. But over that period of time, they become enslaved. And I won't take a lot of time on it because we spent the whole year going through the book of Exodus. So if you missed that, you can go back and read that and catch up. Um, but we spent the whole year going through the book of Exodus this year, preaching through it. But basically, the story is 400 years after they go down to Egypt, they've been enslaved for generation upon generation. It's all they know. They've multiplied into a, a massive group of people, um, probably around 2 million people or more even. And so this is a large group. This is a, God has turned this family into a nation, but they're enslaved. And then God steps in in a very unique moment, and he rescues them. He delivers them. He brings them from Egypt, out of Egypt, in a dramatic way, through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, where he gives them his law that will define how this new nation, this nation that was founded for the purpose of showing the light of God to all the other nations, Showing, showing how amazing God is to all the other nations that worship false idol gods. And he tells them, I'm going to take you in to the promised land. Well, they get to the edge of the promised land within that first, about a year after they're out of Exodus or out of Egypt. They get to the promised land. 
and the people shrink back in fear. They miss their moment. They're, they're afraid. They send spies into the land, and the spies come back and say, there's giants in the land, except for two of them, Joshua and Caleb. You, you know their names. Because they come back and say, we can do this. God's on our side. But the others convince everyone, no, we can't do this. This is terrifying. There's giants in the land, and they shrink back in fear, and they don't enter. And then the people of Israel wander around the desert for 40 years until everyone who was over 20 at that time has died. And it'll be their children and their grandchildren who get to inherit the promise. But they had to live a long time in the, in the desert that they could have been living in the promised land, right? That's why responding to God in moments is so important. And so... That's where we get to the story because now they're again at the edge of the promised land and Joshua is, is the leader of the people of Israel. And he gathers these two spies and he says, I, I, we're, we're at the edge of the Jordan. Jericho is right across the way. I want you to go spy out the promised land. Go see how are the fortifications, especially focus on Jericho because it's, it's our first major obstacle. It's a, it's a fortified city. And so the spies ford the Jordan River. They go over and they begin to spy out the land. They enter Jericho. And as they're entering Jericho, they're checking out all the fortifications and, and military um, you know, encampments and different things within the city. And during that time, they realize we, we need to lay low. And so they see a, a house, a house of Ill, Ill repute. We don't know what the identifier was. You know, This would be like red light district here. Um, in, in our age, right? But we don't know how they identified it. But they identified that this was a place that they could go in and just be anonymous. And so they duck in to Rahab's house. But somebody sees them and recognizes that these were Hebrews. And so they tell the king, and the king sends a search party out in guards, and they come to this house, and they knock on the door, and they say, hey, Somebody saw these Hebrews. They're actually spies. Saw them coming into your house. Bring them out. Tell them to come out. We'd, why didn't they just burst into the house? Well, I think this is a place that you remain anonymous, and you never know who's captain or what famous person's husband would be in that house, and you didn't want to get your head chopped off. And so they said, bring them out to us. And Rahab, in that moment, had a choice to make. Because she'd heard all about this people. She'd heard all about the amazing things that had been done by this God, this God that, that they've heard of named Yahweh. And this was her moment. She had to decide what to do. And in a moment, she decides whose team she wants to be on. She decides what she must do. I'm sure she's terrified. Her heart's just beating in her chest. And she looks at these guards, and she says, yeah, yeah, they came, but they left right before sunset. They escaped out the gate, and then right before you guys raised the gate, they escaped out. And I think they headed for, you know, the river. And if you get a posse together, a search party, you can probably still catch them. And so the guards believe her, and they take off, and they go out of the gate with a search party and go searching for these two spies and then she goes up to the roof where the spies are hiding. 
and has the most amazing conversation with them. Joshua 2, verse 8, says this. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you. So right away we get a window of why she decided to make um, into her decision, why she decided to make this decision. I know that the Lord, she uses the intimate name of God, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh is the best pronunciation that we, we, we have, maybe Yehovah, the existing one. It's the most revered name for God, the personal name that God gave to Moses. I am that I am. I'm just, I, I am the existing one. I am. And she says, I know that, that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We're scared to death of your people. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. That story had spread across the whole region. And they're terrified. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. This was not too long ago. And what's crazy about this is Og, the king of Bashan. This guy is a famous, powerful king. And there's multiple fortified cities. And Og was a very large man. His bed was 13 feet long. He was renowned, and yet his people fell before the one true God. And she says, we've heard all about that. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For, and listen, here, here's the realization that she has. Here's what she realized in this moment. Here's how she made the choice that she did. She says, for the Lord your God is God. For Yahweh your God, and she uses a different word, for Yahweh your Elohim, which is the word for God we see at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Lord your God is God. I've come to the realization that your God is the true God. That the God you follow and worship, we, we worship all these strange idol gods, but they never done anything like that. They never rescued a people. They never parted a sea. Your God is the real God. I've come to this realization. And she shows incredible faith in this moment. She doesn't have a lot of knowledge about God. She just has a lot of faith in who God is. In fact, she is commended there's this passage in Hebrews in the New Testament called the Faith Hall of Fame. It's Hebrews 11. And it lists all these people who did great things by faith. And guess who's listed in there with her title? Rahab the harlot. She showed great faith in protecting the spies. Why? Because she believed that God was who he'd revealed himself to be. Even though she didn't know a lot about him, she believed he was who he'd revealed himself to be. And because of that, she decided what team she wanted to be on. She decided in that moment, I am scared to death that these guards are going to find out I'm lying. But I'm going to get over my immediate fear of these guards because I have a fear and a reverence properly placed 
for the actual God who is God. You know, Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And most of the time, we have an issue with the idea of the fear of the Lord, or we just say it's, it's all about reverence and awe, and that is true. I believe there's a proper, in the believer, in the heart of someone who's a follower of Jesus, we understand God as our Father, and we have an awe and a reverence for Him. But it's also true that He is the God, the creator of the universe, the one. In fact, Jesus said, don't fear the person that can only harm the body or kill the body. Fear the one who has the power of the soul, right? Like if you want to have a properly placed fear, it has to be in reference to the only one worth fearing in an eternal perspective, and that is God. If you don't have your life in proper reference to the God of the universe, all sorts of things will terrify you. You will live in fear to all sorts of things that you should not. And she's scared of these guards, but she has something that is more real and more pressing. And that's the fact that she understands that there is a true God. And I want to follow that God. I want to be on that God's side. You know, we say this thing sometimes, God's on our side. Now the question is, are you on God's side? Are you on his side, right? Verse 12. This is what she asked. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. See, she doesn't know a lot about God. She doesn't understand like the overall big picture of the law and sin and how her whole lifestyle really doesn't match up to the law of God. She doesn't know all that. She hasn't learned all that yet. She literally just knows that I believe God is who he revealed himself to be. Now save me, please. Deliver me. It's profound. That's profound. Because at the heart of following God isn't that you have the whole picture figured out and you understand all the, the deep theology and everything. You know, it's that you understand that Jesus is who he revealed himself to be and that you say, I want to follow you. Save me. That's why Paul in Romans says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's this proper understanding of who God is, that God, I believe you are who you've revealed yourself to be. Now save me. And this is the realization and she asked these, these guys, save us. And they say in verse 14, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. And so she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And this is so cool. Because the spies tell her as before they leave. They tell her, okay, here's the thing. You better have your whole family inside this house when this all goes down. And here will be the sign. You're going to hang a scarlet thread out the window. A scarlet rope out the window. And this will be the sign that this house is saved. I think it's such a profound picture. 
Because when we celebrate salvation and what Jesus did for us on the cross, we, we take the juice that represents his blood that was shed so that we could have forgiveness of sin. So that we could have admission into his family. And this is this beautiful picture of that. Almost 1,500 years before Jesus. And she lets him down and she chooses. And you know what? This was Rahab's moment of grace. This was the moment when grace encountered her. She didn't wake up that day knowing that God would encounter her life. And she didn't know that grace to her would look like two spies putting her life at risk by sneaking into her house. But that was the moment. That was the moment when God encountered her. See, I think life unfolds in a couple kinds of moments. Some of those, I think life unfolds in faithful moments, and that's just the day in, the day out. You know, a lot of times it's kind of mundane. A lot of times the day in, day out is kind of boring, actually. Anybody's life kind of boring on a day in, day out basis, or just mine? All right, none of you. You're like, no, no, no. Yeah, okay, we got, we got an honest one on the front row. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times life is just like, it feels like a slog, doesn't it? You get up, you, you get the kids going and all this stuff, and it's just like, is this right? But guess what? Life unfolds in moments of just living faithfully, living your life faithfully, building a home faithfully, raising your kids to know Jesus, doing, you know, changing the diapers, loading the dishwasher, all those things. Faithfully, life unfolds in moments of faithfulness. But then... I think sometimes life unfolds as well. Those are vital. Those are important. Those are the things that stack up and add up to define your life. But there's another thing that defines your life, and those are defining moments. And those are moments when God's grace just encounters you in a radical way, and you have a choice to make, like Rahab did. Am I going to conquer my fear? Am I going to say yes? Am I going to respond to God in this moment that God is encountering me, or am I going to walk the other way? And those moments are so vital. Those moments set the course and the direction of our lives in profound way, in a profound way. And Rahab conquered her fear. She put her life in a proper reference place to the God of the universe. She did the right thing in this moment when grace encountered her, and it made a profound difference in her life. And here's what happens next in the story. Anybody uh, grow up in Sunday school? Anybody remember the song? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yeah, you know it. You're just going to keep singing it, aren't you? That's okay. Well, you, I'll let you finish, and then I'll go on. Now, here's what happens. They cross the river. The spies come back. They bring the report, and they tell Joshua, and man, our, we would have been dead men had it not been for this prostitute, Rahab, that saved our lives. And because she believed that the true God is the God. She believed in God, right? And so Joshua says, wow, well, you've made an oath to her. We'll save her. But they cross the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant in front of them. God actually splits the Jordan, which is another amazing story for another amazing day because there's some cool archaeological, like, geographical things going on there. But he splits the Jordan. They go through. They celebrate Passover on the other side. This is in the springtime. 
And then God gives Joshua the plan of attack. And Joshua, I can just see Joshua bringing it to his generals. Okay, guys, here's how this battle's going to go. We're going to get up, and for six days, each day, we're going to march around the city once, blowing trumpets with the ark in front. And on the seventh day, we're going to march around seven times, and then after this is done, I'm going to give the command, and we'll all shout, and the walls are going to fall down. You can see the generals going, okay. But they'd seen God do some amazing things, right? They'd just seen God split the Jordan. So I think they're in, in a place of going, okay, well, let's do it. And that's exactly what happens. And can you imagine the fear in that city as they circle that city for the first day with this Ark of the Covenant that represents the presence of God? Just silence. The only thing they hear, the blowing of the trumpets. Freaky. This goes on for six days. On the seventh day, they know something's changed because they don't go around once. They keep circling it and circling it. And then, on the seventh time, they let out the loudest shout. And we don't know what happens, an earthquake. But the walls of the city collapse. And they come up over the bankments, and they take the city, the city of Jericho. And there's a, a documentary that I love. Uh, it was released several, a few years ago. But it's called Patterns of Evidence Exodus. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you look it up. I think it's on Amazon or something. Um, it's worth watching. It's talking about the Exodus and the timeline and how um, the, a lot of people think that the Egyptian timeline was off by about 150 years, which is why they've missed a lot of archaeological evidence around the world for the Exodus. But they, what they've discovered is they, they excavated the city of Jericho because we know where the ancient city of Jericho was. And they excavated it, and what they found was there was this, this mud brick that was 10 feet thick by 25 feet tall, brick walls on top of like a retaining wall that was sloped with plaster so that as an enemy army would approach, um, they could pour boiling oil on them. as If they were trying to breach the walls, they could shoot arrows at them, right? And they excavated this in the, uh, the early 1900s by a German group of archaeologists. They began excavating it. And then in the 50s, there was another extensive excavation by an archaeologist named Kathleen Kenyon. And what they discovered was that the walls, the upper walls, had actually collapsed and fallen over the outer retaining walls. And what they discovered was she... she, she saw that they fell, and then there was a great fire, too. And the archaeologist said it had to have been an enemy attack. It couldn't have just been an accidental fire. It was too extensive. The burn layer was too thick. And then they discovered something else that was really intriguing. Inside these houses, there were jars where they would store their grain in clay jars. But instead of um, what normally happened when a approaching army would attack a fortified city like this is you'd lay siege to the city, and it was very hard to breach these walls, almost impossible. And so they would, they would um, just basically starve them out. And so you see this in all sorts of accounts, that the armies just camp around there. In fact, when, when, is, when Jerusalem was taken in 70 AD, they basically starved them out. There's horrific stories of how, how they even went into cannibalism and stuff because they were that starving, right? What they found in Jericho 
What they found in Jericho was these grain jars were only down a tiny little bit. Remember, it was springtime. It was right after harvest. And so what that indicates is that it was a very short siege. Very short siege. And then they found something really unique and interesting. In one of these sections of the city wall, where most of the walls had collapsed, in one section, there was a section of the wall that was still remaining with house units built into it. And I think that that very place was very likely the spot where Rahab lowered the spies down by a rope and hung a scarlet thread out the window. And in this incredible scene of destruction that we can hardly even imagine, God reaches right down in the middle of that and spares the life of a prostitute and her whole family. And it's an amazing moment of grace. And let me just say, I know for some people, especially if you're maybe just checking out God's church in the Bible, um, sometimes you, you, you think about things like the conquest of Canaan and it's troubling. And let me just say, I don't have a lot of time to develop this today, but there's a lot more going on there than we realize. There's a lot more going on. In, in, in the story of Scripture, there's a, a, uh, these nations were filled with barbaric cultures that did things that would be completely unimaginable to most of us today. These fake idol gods that we believe were inspired by demonic powers would require them to burn their children alive, slash themselves. They were horrible things going on in these cultures. In fact, at one point, God says this incredible, interesting thing. The sin of the Amorites has not reached its completion yet. Um, So, in other words, man, they're, they're just an awful, barbaric culture. And then there's this weird connection with Genesis chapter 6 and these people of unusual size and this story in the scriptures of actually the infection of humanity. It's an interesting thing. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me. I would love to sit down and we could talk about it. It's a cool story. I'll preach on it some other time when I have more time. Or you can go back and listen to my message from July, I want to say 2930, as we went through the book of Exodus. But all that to say, as the people of God take the promised land, they're taking a land that had been overrun by, by people that were very influenced by demonic powers, and we're barbaric cultures that were doing things that are unimaginable to us. And God says, I'm going to make you a nation in this land. And you're going to be light to all the nations that surround. And so here's how Rahab's story ends. In the middle of this incredible scene of destruction, it says in Joshua 6, that Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance to your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her 
because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And listen to this. As Joshua pens this, right towards the end of his life, he writes this. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She's still there. In fact, she, her story ends in a very unexpected way. Eventually, Rahab would incorporate into the culture. We believe that she followed the one true God. That she began to worship and serve the one true God. That she abandoned this lifestyle. Now, it didn't start there. I mean, she's an amazing picture and an illustration that God would have grace even on a foreigner and an outsider and an enemy and someone whose very lifestyle would have been judged under the very law of, of Israel that he'd given 40 years before this, which I think why initially they probably put their whole family outside the camp, right? They didn't know what to do with them. But the amazing thing, when when a person responds to God in the moment when God encounters them, man, God can change the entire trajectory of the story. And so Rahab, she begins to become a follower of God. In fact, I believe you and I will see her in heaven one day. And when you do, don't go up to her and go, you're Rahab the harlot, okay? Don't do that. Just say, oh, Rahab, you're the one that hid the spies. Okay? All right. <laughs> but she, she has a new life. And before you know it, one day, as the story goes on, she's, she's hanging out. Maybe she's in the field, you know, getting, reaping, you know, harvesting some, some wheat. Or maybe she's at the water well, and this, this young, handsome dude named Salmon sees her over there. And he walks up one day, finally gets up the courage. He walks up to her and says, Rahab, uh, my name's Salmon. I'm wondering if you might want to get lunch sometime. I know a place with some great hummus. And one thing leads to another, and they fall in love. And they get married. And they have a baby. Named Boaz. And he'll go on to marry another famous lady named Ruth. We did a whole series in her book a couple years ago. And their great-grandson was none other than King David. And hundreds of years later, this story... This story would be actually shocking as, as followers, as early Jewish people in the first century read this. And they read this genealogy and they come to this name Rahab. And they recognize that in the midst of like, they were so intent on following the law. In the midst of that, there's this strange story of God's grace all these hundreds of years before. And it would have been shocking And Matthew says, I know that's why I put it in the story. Because God's grace has been encountering people all along. And now it's arriving in a whole new way. That salvation is arriving. It's announced as good news for the whole world. And I think Matthew must have chuckled as he writes this story. As Rahab, a woman condemned by Moses' law, is shown grace because she believed in the one true God and she acted on that faith. 
God's grace spared her. And I bet she had no idea that her life would end up probably looking a lot more like the picture she had as a little girl. That she would end up married to a respectable Jewish guy and that she would have a son. That she would be in the very lineage of the Messiah. You know, the story of Christmas was announced to the world as good news. It is good news. Because in a, in a room this size and, and online, everybody joining us, I know there's people with a past that you are ashamed of, with a present that you are ashamed of. The good news of the story of Christmas is that God went out of his way for you to know that you can be included. In fact, he may have a very significant role in his story for you. And just like the spies were a moment of grace where God encountered Rahab, her response was a really big deal. Her courage and her trust in God completely changed the course of her whole family's lives. And she stands as an example that your past and your present does not have to define your future. That grace encounters you and I in unexpected ways, in unexpected moments, and how we respond in those moments will be something that defines our story. I've got something to take home today. It's this. Your response in moments of grace will define your story. I believe that. The way you respond to God in the moments when when His grace encounters you, it, it will go on to define your story. To define your life. Sometimes those moments of grace come, come to you with, when you hear the truth of the gospel proclaimed and God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, just moves on your heart. You feel him drawing him, yourself to him. That's his grace. That's grace for salvation. He's inviting you into his story. He's inviting you to trust Jesus, to place your faith in him, to respond to him and receive the salvation and life that he offers. I think sometimes those moments of grace come when God interrupts your busy agenda and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, pay attention to this. Or, hey, I want you to go over there and talk to so-and-so. Or, hey, um, check in with your neighbor. Or, hey, ask your coworker right now if you can put your hand on their shoulder and pray for them. You're like, oh, that's so awkward. Yeah, do it right now. And when you respond in that moment of grace, you see God break through. You know, life is much more exciting. Following Jesus is much more exciting when you respond to him and you obey and you listen to the Holy Spirit. If the Christian life is boring and mundane, perhaps it's because you haven't been responding to him when he encounters you. When when you become part of the bigger story and you focus your life on sharing his love and his grace with others and you start your day out asking, God, who are you going to bring into my life today? Who do you want me to talk to today? Who do you want me to pray for today? Let me be open to it. Guess what? When you pray that prayer, God, bring people into my life, he, he will be ready for it. But boy, oh boy, you're, you're, all of a sudden your faith will be taken to a whole new level. When your faith becomes more than just about you and your, yourself and your little kingdom, when it becomes about seeing the love and the grace of God extended, It'll change your life, right? Sometimes that grace comes in the midst of a very hard circumstance. So I think grace, we think of grace, it literally means unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. God reached down and saved you. There's grace that, guess what? We still blow it a lot. 
That's grace that he continues to forgive you. He continues to, to draw you to himself. To himself. He continues to work on you. It's a big theological word we call sanctification. It's grace. And then grace, in a sense, is this almost, it's like the special sauce of following Jesus. It's that thing that, that in the moment when you need it the most, he steps in and he gives you grace. He tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I was going through this hard thing that I didn't like, and yet his grace has been sufficient. And, and some of you have experienced that in profound ways, that you went through things that you had never thought you would be able to go through, and yet you look back and you're like, I don't know, it's just his grace. And in those moments, you just respond in trust and faith in him and say, I trust you. Give me your grace to get through this. Would you stand? And as we close um, today, let me just ask you, has God's grace been encountering you in a way that you've maybe been resisting? Have you just been too distracted that you haven't even been paying attention to him? In Hebrews, the same place as the Hall of Fame of Faith, it says this, Today, if you hear your, his voice, do not harden your hearts like they did when they shrunk back and wouldn't go into the promised land originally. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Respond to him in the moment. And for some of you, you're like, I don't even know. I just, it's been so long. It's in the rearview mirror. I, I just, there's no freshness there. And as we close, if that's you and you're a follower of Jesus in the room or joining us online, I want to invite you as we close, just maybe just stretch out your hands in front of you and say, Lord, I, I want to be open to you encountering me and attentive to you because I want to live this life as you meant it to be lived, experiencing the joy of your salvation and the excitement of sharing your love with others. And for some in the room, this might look like you just responding by, by trusting God for the first time, like Rahab, where she makes a choice that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be on that team. I'm going to follow you. If you feel like God's indifferent to you, he's not. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants relationship with you. And for some in the room or joining us online, um, Maybe that means responding to him right now. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. The Holy Spirit may be drawing you to trust him. Let's just bow our heads. And if that's you in the room or online, you can just pray a prayer, something like this after me. Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I believe you are the son of God. I believe you died and rose again. And I place my faith and trust in you and ask you for your salvation. Save me, Lord. Deliver me. Rescue me. I confess my sin. I ask for your forgiveness. I want to turn from that and follow you with all my heart. Thank you, Lord. Now, Lord, for the rest of my friends here, as they ask you to move and encounter their lives, Lord, would you just renew the work, maybe for those that um, years ago, they were passionately in love with you and their heart just feels dead and cold right now. Um, would your Holy Spirit soften their hearts? Would you renew them in this moment, Lord? Would you let them feel that encounter of your grace again? 
And then let them respond to it and run towards you. Lord, we love you. We lift your name up and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Amen.